This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Brie Arthur, who is a fabulous person. She's a foodie, a foodscaper, an author of the new upcoming book, Foodscaping. She does lots and lots of garden talks, and you really, I know some people had, you know, we had Roz Creasy doing edible gardening years and years ago. She was one of my idols, but you have gone so much different from that, that direction. Tell people what foodscaping is, Bree, please. Okay. Well, it's a treat to talk with you today. And I will say Rosalind Creasy is certainly a mentor of mine and a role model. And it was her books that really inspired me to incorporate food. And, um, you know, the, the route that I'm trying to take foodscaping is, is really to empower the landscape industry finding that the services that professional landscapers offer don't necessarily meet the needs and values of the new consumer. And this is not just an age demographic. This is also baby boomers that are downsizing and want to make the most of the square footage of their landscape. And the conventional ways of addressing, um, you know, residential uh, design aren't incorporating cutting gardens and food and herbs and so foodscaping is really trying to make the most of the square footage that you have and of course it's not eliminating the ornamentals from the palette. I think one of the really critical things that we all need to evaluate when we're looking at designing landscapes and, and managing them long-term with greater efficacy and organic sustainable management is that biodiversity is the most important thing that we can bring to the table. And the ornamental plants that are in conventional landscapes actually offer an incredible amount of biodiversity. In contrast, our food crops aren't very biodiverse. You know, here we're going into the cool season and so you might have collards and broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage. All of those are in the same family. And though we've made distinctions based off of the way we consume them from a culinary purpose, from a biological standpoint, that's a monoculture. So you're inviting insects and diseases when you put all of those crops in a small space, specifically the common raised bed which is today's version of pretending to be a farmer in the suburbs. <laughs> you know, my goal is to get people to, instead of installing that ugly wooden thing that they lose interest in, to use the open square footage in the foundation landscape that they already have. Uh, and this just, as a rule, enables those plants to do better because they are in a more biodiverse setting. You know, I ask people all the time, do you have hollies in your landscape or hydrangeas or knockout roses, you know, maybe a crepe myrtle or a Japanese maple, you look at all of those plants and they all come from different plant families. And that is where the biodiversity really begins. And so I think it's important that people understand, you know, to manage, manage a space as organically as possible, you want to reduce the disease and insect pressures. And by doing that, you can't plant monocultures. 
You know, I've always thought of the lands, you know, typical suburban landscape as being not very biodiverse, but the opposite. And it, yes, there are lots of different. There are some plants from different families. Most and and many people have, but many people have um, way too many of one thing and nothing of something else. Plus all that hideous lawn. Well, that's the truth. And, you know, as I consult with landscapers, you know, I think it's important in a design that you have a good balance of broadleaf evergreens to deciduous flowering shrubs and conifers and, you know, flowering trees and fruiting trees. And I think in general, our American standard for uh, the regulations of suburban landscapes could use a tweaking. Right now, the uh, average plan is that 20% of the space be devoted to landscape and 80% be devoted to turf. And I will say, you know, turf plays in role, and especially if you can manage that turf space organically, you're definitely doing a service for the environment. But I think that those percentages should be should be reevaluated, and particularly as we move forward with a stronger local foods movement where suburban landscapes could play a larger role in producing food for communities, I could see that ratio really maybe transitioning more to a 40-60. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't want people to tear out all their lawn, get gung-ho on growing food and lose interest, and really create an infrastructure problem. And that's really the main reason why homeowner associations say no food in the front yard, because people are under the impression that the only way they can do it is to tear out grass and put in raised beds. And I have yet to really find um, a person other than Joe Lample, and I will say Joe has the most beautiful raised bed garden that I've ever seen. Um, but most people lose interest. You know, growing food is something that maybe only captivates them for half the year. Or, you know, your life changes and you suddenly don't have time to manage it. And, um, you know, it can become very untidy. And that's not the suburban model that really any of us have, have moved into. You know, I moved out to the suburbs mostly because of finances, but also because I, I like that it's orderly and tidy and, um, you know, there aren't cars on blocks. <laughs> at my neighbor's house. And, you know, so when, when people get, uh, you know, really upset about some of the landscape covenants that HOAs have in their bylaws, I, I often look at it as, well, let's identify why they have that and then find a solution to work around so that you can feel empowered and not offend your neighbors. And that, for me, has really been the goal with foodscaping. And, you know, I, I truly hope to see that, the landscape industry can really ownership of this idea and play a role in local, sustainable, organic food. Um, you know, I want somebody to say, oh, I've got to call the landscaper. I, I need to get vegetables put in. And that's not something that people associate with the landscape industry right now. That is for sure. It's, and it's one that I never would have, it never would have occurred to me um, in part because as a garden designer and seeing what some landscapers, quote landscapers, have done to some of the designs that I have installed or have, have helped a homeowner install, um, they just, a lot of these, quote, landscapers have a mower, a blower, 
and you know not much of anything else including not the knowledge either now i know some wonderful landscapers that do beautiful jobs but i see them i see the majority hacking you know the the evergreens in front into little meatballs and making moose horns out of a crepe myrtle just beheading the poor little thing and I, I, I just despair that these people are able to learn to take care of anything other than what they already know how to do. Well, you know, it's definitely a, a long-term process. And I will say the landscapers that I consult with are certainly forward-thinking. Um, I think, you know, if there's a, a lot of dynamics at play, uh, I guess, in any industry, but specifically with regard to this in that you have these landscapers who maybe fall into this as a as a accidental career without a lot of training or passion and until we have a society that values what the landscape offers which is really a fairly new conversation i i don't think even 10 years ago we were talking about the function that plants play in a landscape so my hope is that 10 years from now that expectation will be that, of course, this landscape has to be beautiful, but it also has to provide, you know, a sanctuary for the ecology of my of my home garden, and I want there to be an element of yard to table. And um, as that standard rises, I think we'll see a standard in what landscapers provide also rise to the level what the consumers demand. And so for me, I'm trying to attack this from two places. I'm trying to empower the landscape industry and also connect with the homeowner so that homeowners know what to ask for and they know, uh, you know, the, the landscapers that they should be working with versus, you know, hiring the person who comes in with the, the lowest bid. Um, and, and, you know, that's going to be an ongoing struggle. We're a relatively unregulated industry. I think the more certifications that the green industry can offer for landscape professionals, the, the higher the bar will be raised. And so that's definitely something that I'm actively working with the North Carolina Nursery and Landscape Association on, you know, creating some curriculum to get landscape professionals aware of organic land management and understanding the cycles of seasonal vegetables and, you know, strategies for maintaining fruit trees and nut trees in, in landscapes, both residential and commercial. Yeah, the the last time we, we were t- talking uh, we were talking a little bit about about training people, training tree cutter type people, how to um, prune fruit trees, and I thought that was just a marvelous idea because most homeowners don't have the time to acquire all the knowledge that they need to do that and do it well. And when you have them have landscapers doing pruning of fruit trees, that opens up a whole new world. And it opens up a whole new world of different ways of growing fruit trees rather than the ones we do typically, you know, with a regular orchard because people now are doing a lot more espalier. They're doing, um, I saw something that was a step over fruit garden where the prunes were, where the plants, the apples in this case, were cut within like a foot of the ground and then you know, done. Then from there, it was the normal thing of running them along a wire. But they were keeping the plant that low, and the amount of production that was coming off of this one little sidewalk 
you know, up to the front yard, up to the front door. It was just incredible. And, and those are exactly the innovations, you know, that, that need to be shared. Um, I haven't seen that, and now I'm, it's going to be my life's mission to find it. <laughs> figure out how to do that. <laughs> I will see if I can find it and, and post it. I think, I think what I had looked at was a little video, and, and I think it was from one of the extension services, but I'm not sure. But I will look for that, too, because when I was in Williamsburg for a garden writers thing several years ago, we, we did a lot of poking around in gardens, and the ways that people have been growing fruit in town for years and years and years have been spectacular. And it doesn't seem to mostly have come down to us. I think it's probably because the skill got lost. And we have to reteach them how to do that. Yes. Well, well if, we know, so. if we know anything in the garden world, it's a continuous education for ourselves and for, uh, you know, the people that we have as new recruits. <laughs> well, we have to take a little break right now. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you some more about new recruits on the homeowner side and what their reaction is to some of this. I know that you've got pretty much everybody in your local, your neighborhood is, is, comes over to look and see what's new. But we'll be right back after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. To America's Web 
America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Bree Arthur, and we're talking foodscaping. And foodscaping is a little bit different um, from an edible landscape, but it shares some similarities. And I'm curious, Bree, you have been talking all over the country, and folks, when I say all over the country, is there a state that you missed except Alaska and Hawaii? Um, you know, I I haven't really been in the prairie states yet, so maybe next year. (laughs) Yeah, that that might be fun to do. There's a lot of diversity in the prairie states, and that, it always intrigues me. But I have a question. Um, When you do these landscape talks, are people familiar with the idea of foodscaping before you um, talk to them? Or is the idea totally foreign to them? You know, it's generally a pretty new concept. Um, now and again, people will, will come up to me and say, oh, you know, I've been aware of this movement uh, with Rosalind Creasy's work. And um, for the most part, though, I think people are curious because it's sort of a new term. It's... Um, uh, you know, I think there's a good ring to the to the word foodscaping, and so that's a, a a thing that grabs people's attention, and then they're curious, and I think they're kind of relieved when uh, they hear something like, "You don't have to tear out your whole your whole garden and start over. Use what you have. If anything, you know, right now, just plant garlic and onions right along the edge, and you're contributing to the world and that you will be able to grow some of the food that you consume on a regular basis. You know, at the at the heart of the foodscape model for me, there are a couple dynamics that I, I think that growing food and landscapes help solve. And the number one thing is, you know, removing some of the harsh chemistries from your weekly use and really looking at organic land management. And that's difficult to convince people to take the effort to learn a new strategy when all they're doing is growing ornamentals. But when you include food that they are bringing in and serving to their family, they suddenly understand why they should be using Espoma instead of Scott. And, you know, I have a, 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 a strong connection to soil science, and I think that many of the problems that people endure in their gardens are really a problem of soil imbalance and when you're using salt-based fertility, you really reduce the microbial activity and therefore are opening up a whole slew of issues, especially root disease problems. So, you know, by incorporating food, you're encouraging people to manage the space organically. And then you're also having an impact ultimately on the food miles, which people, I'm shocked that more people aren't aware of the food miles crisis that we're facing today. And it's estimated that by 2050, our conventional agricultural dynamics won't be able to supply the food for the global population. And grocery store chains, specifically Walmart, are being uh, very forward-thinking in the food miles dynamic and really trying to sustainable agricultural model. And when I look at that, I see 180 million acres of suburban land that could be used to grow certain specific seasonal crops that stay within a community. 
So, you know, there's no reason that every landscape in the suburbs can't be producing 100% of the garlic and onions that the homeowners consume. Now, you just touched on garlic, and I remember last year you had um, a little problem with your garlic. Did you, were you able to figure out how many that you're, how many you're plant, how many cloves you're planting this year? That cracked me up. I've decided that no one will ever deny the gift of a garlic braid, so it's okay for me to grow too much. And um, I'm doing the same thing this year. I'm edging all of my beds with, you know, shallots, garlic, and onions, mostly because they really do help deter the in-ground mammals, the moles and the voles, which will come in and eat all the rest of my plants. And so... um, you know, I'm just happy to give garlic away to anybody who's interested. We throw dinner parties, and I actually use garlic cloves as the name plates, and they have to take <laughs> garlic home. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people in the audience are saying, she does what? <laughs> Tell me how it works that. <clears throat> well, you know, those those bulbs are just so cute and perfect, and you can just put their little name card in there so they know where they have to sit at the table. (laughs) And they get a take-home, organic garlic. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, in case people didn't hear the earlier episode that we did, is that you had bought, you had calculated out how many cloves of garlic you use a day or um over the course of a year, and then you ordered not thinking that um, what you are getting out of one clove is an entire um, head of garlic, and that just cracked me up because I have sometimes done goofy things like that too. Um, Oh, yes, overabundance. I I don't do it with stuff that's really valuable, like shallots. You know, could you imagine having planted all that many shallots last year? And what you would have, I mean, you could go sell it at the farmer's market for a fortune. Organically well, that's grown true. Shallots. And I just started planting shallots yesterday. I, you know, with the onions, what I do is, um, you know, just save the small sets from last year's harvest, and that's what I reuse for the garden. And this year I realized I probably have, you know, at least 500 onion sets. <laughs> so I might be in the same boat with, with onions as I was garlic last year. <laughs> now, do you find, now, if I remember correctly, you plant them right in front of your foundation plants and right at that little edge there. And you mentioned that it does take care of the garlic, of, of the voles and, and meadow mice and other creatures like that getting in. Um, do you find that that reflected heat is helpful, the reflected heat from the house? Well, um, I p- probably yes. I mean, my beds are relatively deep. Um, you know, what I started with uh, was four-foot deep beds. In many cases, I've expanded to 12-foot. So I don't know if there's as much reflected heat on my bed edges as in a more conventional suburban landscape. But I, I do think having that juxtaposition to the house helps give, you know, some extra protection, especially if we get very cold. You know, of course, these allium crops are very hardy, and um, they're, they're just too easy for people in the south to grow to not have at least tried once. 
you know, for the amount of effort you have to put in, you're literally just thumbing the, the onion set or garlic bulb into the ground and leaving it alone until you harvest it in May or June. Um, there are basically no other plants that are going to be as easy to grow uh, as, as these allium varieties are. But you, you follow, you have your onions and garlic following your peanuts, so the bed is already dug up. I don't want to give people the idea that if they haven't worked over their soil that they could just pop them right in with their thumb. But, yeah, it's, it, yeah. It, it is easy if you've got prepared soil. I can't, the, the hardest thing for me is finding an onion or a garlic that I like that's, you know, that's perfect for me and not overly strong or that's being too strong is, is most of my problem. I have tried um, Vidalias here, but of course we have too much sulfur in the soil for them to be sweet. So I think from I think I'll just cheat on those and buy them. It's not five thousand miles to get them here. It's only it's only a couple, maybe a hundred and a half or so. Exactly, Vidalias are the one onion that we can reliably count on coming from our region. Um, you know, and that's really I think. Part of the dynamic of growing your own food is understanding what food miles means. And, you know, I tell people, if you go to the grocery store once a week and say you have 25 items in your grocery store, the average food mile per item is 1,500 miles. So you have to multiply 1,500 times 25 times 52 weeks of the year, and that's your actual food miles carbon footprint. And then, you know, look at ways that you can reduce those 25 items maybe to 15 items by producing some of your own seasonal food in your landscape. And overall, if everyone was doing that, there would be a a significant change in in this trouble that we're facing as our global population rises. Yeah, and it's going to be more and more of a problem because a lot of that cannot really be alleviated by alternative energy um, and as much as we would like it to just because of the amount of energy required to move a train or a semi-truck, something like that. But we can all do a little bit. And do you, how do you decide what you're going to plant? Is it just because you absolutely adore it or what? Well, um, I think, you know, seasons probably dictate the, the plantings the most, uh, and then definitely. I think it's really important that if you're growing food that you grow the food you want to eat, not just growing food for the sake of growing food and letting it rot on the vine, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I really came to growing food with my passion for tomatoes, and I looked mm-hmm. at the way I consume food, and, and tomatoes make up a big part of it. I like to eat pastas and spaghettis and pizza and tomato soup and salsa. And so nearly every day we're consuming some sort of tomato product and then figuring out how I can grow the tomatoes and then convert those tomatoes into the sauces and salsas and, and you know, paste that I would use to implement for dinner every night has, has been a really fun, uh, a fun way to use the space I have. And now we don't buy any tomato products at all. We can more than accommodate that. And so, you know, I try to look at each crop that way, and I really like to focus on the crops that I know I can grow the most of so that I'm really not having to buy them from the store ever. 
So, um, you know, certainly brassicaceous crops, you know, we can really only grow those fall into winter depending on our winter temperatures. If you don't cover, they might melt, and then you have to replant in late winter for spring. Um, so, you know, right now I'm in the midst of planting a tremendous amount of broccoli and, and cauliflower and cabbage, along with all of the leafy greens of lettuce and collards and kale and mustard. Um, and, and then, you know, so much of it is temperature dependent, and you just never know. We have yet to have a frost this season. And what I last year was because of the very warm fall and early winter, when we did get cold in January, nothing was hardened off. So mm-hmm. plants that should have been hardy ended up dying. And yep. so, you know, I think, you know, every season you, you learn a lot. And I think the one thing you can say about being a gardener is that you'll have an endless respect for Mother Nature because you'll never, oh, yeah. ever have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> and you've had everything in on your plate this year, including a hurricane. And we, but we've got to take another break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about the weather and what it's done to you. And you're growing a lot of grains, which is something that is foreign to people. And in an email you sent, you said you were doing... Um, trying your grains two different ways. So I'm really curious to find out about that, and we'll be right back after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and my guest today is... Bree Arthur, who is who's got an upcoming book on foodscaping, but we were right before the break. We were talking about um, your weather this year. We're in the middle of a horrible, horrible drought. It has been going on since July. We did get some rain in July, and we have got barely gotten anything since then. There are wildfires and fire warnings, and now the wind has been kicking up, and I'm I'm getting really frightened of it we can, have you ever seen an althea a rose of sharon bush wilt oh gosh that's that's a terrible indication yeah i was out feeding the chickens this morning and outside kitties and i noticed that there were that the althea bushes were wilting and some of the bamboo 
I would hope that it would kill the bamboo. Of course, I know it won't. And my fringe tree went from green to bright yellow for about three days, and then it went brown. It's oh weird. no! Yeah. Um. So and it's I've looked very careful for um, the emerald ash borer. Because I know that it feeds on fringe trees too, but it doesn't. Um, it I don't see any damage from that yet. It's just the drought. So tell us about your year, and I also want to know how you manage to take care of everything with your schedule. <laughs> well, I'll answer your second question first. Um, there was a, a few dynamics. Um, I've been. I'm super fortunate to have um, a husband who will happily move hoses around and keep everything watered through the dry season, and my wonderful neighborhood children helpers that uh, really take a lot of ownership over the foodscape here and you know keep track of my hydroponic systems while I'm away and uh, help with harvesting and and really just keep their their nine- and seven-year-old eyes open at all times. But here in central North Carolina, we have not been as dry as your region. I know um, in the Charlotte area, they're also in, um, I think, maybe stage one droughts. And um, We had, of course, Hurricane Matthew came through here about three weeks ago, just over three weeks ago, and dropped nine inches of rain. Um, and I, of course, lost the property border of inherited Leyland cypress, which are a huge no-no, and for anybody else out there that's inherited those, please don't give up on horticulture, but also don't replace them with another monoculture of a conifer that's going to grow five times bigger than you need it to. Um, I, have a, I have a very strong opinion about suburban screening, and um, it does not need to be 60 foot tall. That's an unnecessary amount of biomass. It creates, um, you know, bad shadow patterns and makes it so areas can't dry out or makes it so areas uh, can't grow turf. And I think when you're in the suburbs, what you need are, are property screens that grow somewhere under 20 feet. And, and make sure that you have biodiversity represented so if one plant fails, you can yank it out and replace it, and you don't have to deal with an entire property screen. So I'm in the midst of revamping uh, the south property border of my yard, which um, has opened up just under 3,000 square feet of full sun, full exposure, southwestern exposure. And I'm, I'm a bit flabbergasted by it because... Um, I, I'm worried about the broadleaf evergreens being in too much winter sun, and um, I certainly can't grow camellias in this location. And so I'm converting it to to grains for the for this season, and I will work those grains um, into the soil to help improve drainage. And I'm in an area that has a very high water table, which I know for people in drought-stricken land sounds like a luxury, but trust me, there's a whole slew of problems when you have hydrologic pressure that's literally popping water out of the mm -hmm. surface of the earth. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I have to really build up my beds considerably in order to get the plants to not not die from root rot. Um, and so that's, I've just started yesterday, I, a friend from Plant Delight, Jeremy Schmidt, a very talented 
uh, designer and plantsman. He's the head of research at Plant Delights. Has come out and is lending his skills uh, so that we can create some elevation and actually put in a permanent aquaponic system. And um, I'm really excited about what we can do with a suburban property border that's not a hedge of green giant arborvitaes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope that if this, this experiment and, and showing people how it's done, I'm certainly going to, you know, categorize all of this through Facebook and share through Twitter and Instagram and my website to show the opportunity that this square footage can offer if you look at it from a slightly different point of view. And, you know, that's really the role I play in this business is taking what's conventional and turning it a little bit to make it, you know, meet my needs. And I selfishly think that uh, there are more people that have the same needs and values as me, uh, especially emerging as young homeowners, and uh, I, I just want to see every square foot of the landscape be used for something greater. And I don't think Leyland's really provided anything other than a screen. And, and there are going to have plants that I dislike more than Leyland's. Blue Rug yeah. Juniper might be up here with them. Uh, but, yeah, I, it, are you going to plant some fruit trees in there, too? Because some of those grow really quickly, like, like service berry. Strawberry, persimmon, pawpaw, you know, some of the fruits that you can't ever get at the grocery store are what you should absolutely be having in your landscape. I mean, I'm not willing to try to grow peaches and apples and cherries simply because of the climate that I live in. I don't want to have to spray with regularity. But those crops, those those plants, persimmons and pawpaws and service berry, um, at low quats, our climate is, is mild enough to be able to grow in fruit loquats. I think those are all delicious fruits that are relatively under underutilized just because they don't travel well, so you're never going to find them at Harris Teeter. Um, yeah, you might but, find yeah. them at, if somebody's growing them locally, you might find them at the farmer's market. But it's really hard to get. With regard to service berries, of course, one of the hardest things to do with them is to keep the birds away from them. I always tell them that they can have the top half, but they want the bottom half too. But service berry in particular is one that it gives you good color and you get the berries and you're feeding birds and uh and it grows fast. You had mentioned your broadleaf evergreens that are, are now in the sun over there, and I thought that, yeah, that might be a, a plant for you um, because it does grow fast, but then it stops. You know, I, mine got to be about 20 feet tall, 25 feet tall, and then it just stopped, grow, stopped growing. It was wonderful. And that's the perfect size for a screen in between, especially in my neighborhood, one-story houses. You know, I'm not having to screen a three-story mansion next door, so I don't need 60-foot coverage. Uh, And, you know, I see that over and over again. We constantly pull out these what we call bad screens from the 90s, and we replace them with equally bad screens of the 2000s. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I hope that I, I... I will will continue to pound this down into the minds of every landscaper that will give me five minutes that, you know, these monoculture screens in the suburbs are, are really setting setting consumers up to hate horticulture. And uh, we, we don't need to do that. 
<laughs> we, yeah, for sure. And, and get people to love it as much as possible. And, you know, planting 50 of one thing is not the solution. Yeah, and that's pretty much what I meant about, you know, suburban, a lot of suburban landscapes just being, you know, the antithesis of a, of a polyculture to me. They are, because people do plant so much of the same stuff. And, you know, we mentioned lawn, and I don't really particularly have a, a problem with lawns if you choose the right amount of lawn for your needs. You know, if you need a play place for your kids or a, something to help set off the beauty of your home or something like that, it's perfect, perfectly good to have a bit of lawn. That this turf by default just makes me crazy. I completely agree. And it's funny you say that because um, I've been really intrigued this year after visiting Moore Farms Botanical Garden down in Lake City, South Carolina, just a life-changing botanical garden. Everyone should put it on their bucket list. It's an incredible place. But they do a really interesting turf-on-turf turf design to show how you can have a big open space, which in their case they use, you know, for large events, things like wine walk and, and beer festivals and fundraisers. And, but you have this diversity within the Poaceae, and they've created these beautiful designs. In fact, in, in one case, it's a, a Bermuda on centipede, and it's the shape of a huge uh, tobacco leaf, which is a nod to what this property used to be, a, an old tobacco farm in the low country. And it's so beautiful. And I, I looked at that, and I started to think about the grains on grass component and how we do have these huge, sweeping turf spaces. And if we were to just intersect them in an aesthetically pleasing architectural way and grow some seasonal grains, you know, you're, you're still sticking to a Poaceae palette, but what you're ultimately growing is something that has a nutritional value. Um, and I think that there's just so much to explore in, you know, cutting down some of that turf space, but certainly leaving it to a degree so that you have path access and, um, you know, places for uh, people to sit down and have a picnic. Or in my case, we like to play bocce ball. And I don't want to have a, a suburban landscape that doesn't have turf, but I certainly don't need 80% of my property to be devoted to it. Now, for, although I think a lot of people may not know that the Poesia family is, includes grass, and of course most of the grains that we have are grasses of one type or another. How many grasses, how many types do we have in your garden now? Well, I'm in the, the season where I'm putting in wheat and oats and barley and rye. So those are the main, the main uh, grains that I'm actively growing and installing for the winter. And I still have rice growing in the landscape from the summer and still have cane sorghum and grain sorghum, which this year I'm using just for birds, bird feed. I wanted to grow my own bird feed so that I knew that it was organic. I know that it's not been treated with any pesticides. Um, and so, you know, I think that's kind of an interesting component. The, the birds actually don't eat it when it's growing on the stalk, uh, but it's high in protein and carbohydrates, and it's a great winter feed. 
Um, so right now I'd say in my garden I probably have uh, seven or eight different varieties of greens actively growing. And what I'm really looking at, because I, I think that there's so much potential for local carbohydrates to be grown in conventional landscapes, but I don't know that the meadow effect is the most effective strategy. Uh, for one thing, it's, it's pretty high maintenance to get the wheat out when you have it mixed with all those flowers and mm-hmm. not grown in clumps. So... Uh, Similar to how I grow my rice, I start the seed in communal flats and then pluck out clumps. Hold that that that. thought. We're we're right up on a hard break, and we'll be right back after this. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Bree Arthur, and right before the break, she was telling us about the grains she's growing. And... I'm from the Midwest. I'm used to seeing lots and lots of, you know, the fields would be full of wheat one year, full of corn the next year. Um, and so I think a lot of people may be thinking about that as what it is. And, of course, you know, rice is, t- you typically, your idea of a rice paddy is, um, is, is someplace way foreign, way far away from us, though there were rice paddies along the coast here in, in Georgia and North Carolina. So how are you dealing with that? Well, you know, I, I think um, I, the grains, I, I first looked at uh, grains as, well, they're an edible ornamental grass. Why wouldn't we have them in our landscape? And... Um, I, you know, I got involved with some landscapers who had an interest in covering a lot of square footage, and so we went through the process of direct seeding and and getting them to understand the mixed meadow concept. And in some situations, that's a perfect that's a, a perfect use of land. It's it's really a nod to the North Carolina Department of Transportation seeding uh, program. They've done this amazing job of growing wildflowers and, 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 you know, different seasonal flowering plants along our highways mm-hmm. from a direct seeding program. But as I've been talking to residential landscapers and homeowners who have an interest but maybe not the design aesthetic of something that looks so wild as, as a meadow or, you know, even a small field, so to speak, uh, really started looking at how to grow the grains as clumps so that they're very much just like you would plant a, a one-gallon penicetum. 
you could plant a, a one-gallon clump of wheat and, you know, have great winter interest and allow it to go to flower in the spring and, and, and feel that patriotism from the amber waves of grain. Uh, I know that sounds funny, but honestly, when people see the wheat in my front garden at that stage ready to be harvested, they actually feel the need to salute. And I think that's <laughs> part of our American heritage, you know, and, and wheat certainly goes back far, far beyond that. It's actually the crop that's responsible for uh, allowing humanity to create community and to stop um, hunting and gathering and, and being transient. It's, it's truly the, the crop that uh, harnessed its energy in, in the way to enable people to specialize. And I think if nothing else, you should grow a few clumps just to give a nod of the heritage of this plant and the 10,000 years that it's evolved. Uh, not and, and you know, when you look at wheat, you mentioned penicetum, and about 20 years I planted penicetum olipocroides, and I'm still ripping that stuff out. It went to seed. I had no idea it was going to be as bad as it was, and I am just crazy. I hate it, and I've dug, and I've ripped, and I try to... If if I can't get to it because something else is going on, I try to at least make sure it's out of there before it reseeds. And it's horrible. But, you know, wheat would be a nice thing. I really ad- admire, you know, I've, I've grown wheat. Uh, I've grown tomatoes in wheat straw, and I've used wheat straw to start, you know, where they ripped up the, soil, the septic tank and, and the septic system and put in a new drain line. And wheat is very pretty when it seeds. It's gorgeous, and especially when you get it backlit um, at, at daybreak or late in the evening. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's, I hoard photographs in this era of digital digital everything i i'm a digital hoarder uh i should say i there will be a great article written by helen yost coming out in january in uh, country gardens magazine all about the suburban grain experiment and um you know ways that it can enhance your everyday landscape and and then you know for me my dream with this i like to dream big is if everybody devoted, say, a 1,000 square feet of their suburban lawn to growing and cultivating grains, that grain could then be, you know, harvested and uh, turned into flour, and that could be the resource for your local bakery. And how cool would that be that when you go in to buy bread every week, you know that your garden, your, your, your plot of land that you own played a role in making that possible. And um, I do think that local carbohydrates are on the rise. I think it's not something that in the last decade we've really addressed in the local foods movement. And carbohydrates are a part of everyone's diet, whether you're eating them directly or you're eating the animals that consume them. We're not getting around the carbohydrates. And it's something that I think them being grown in a more sustainable, organic, localized fashion is, is extremely important. Um, it's not all of our wheat needs to come from Iowa. We all here in the southeast have climates that can accommodate these crops and um, doesn't have to be that they're done in an agronomic way. You know, like, like we said with garlic and onions, 
every little bit that you can grow will make a difference ultimately in the dynamic of how food is is transported across the country and the world. And the more you can grow yourself, the better. And the more we can collectively grow to help feed our community, the stronger uh, our communities will be. And, you know, I think that food insecurity is something that Americans don't like to address, but uh, we have a large population of people that don't have secure lines of food or, or don't have quality food available to them. And the more food that's produced locally, the, the better chances of empowering your community. Now, when have you solved the pro, uh, problem of threshing and winnowing? Because <laughs> I know when I was a kid, we would, of course, go through the wheat fields um, when, when it was producing, and we'd always grab a couple of heads, and, and we'd rub them back and forth in our hands to get the wheat seeds out to munch on. Um, do you have, have you figured out how to deal with that? Well, on a small scale, yes and no. Um, you know, it's definitely a process. We, we actually do most of our threshing uh, at our 4th of July party. And so it's a community effort, you know. And it's something that I think is an authentic experience because certainly my generation has no experience with anything even remotely like that. Um, my dream of, you know, getting, say, my whole neighborhood to grow a 1,000 square feet in each yard, that would then we would turn to some form of mechanization uh, because it is pretty labor-intensive. And um, the fact is these machines exist, and, and they can be retrofitted into smaller sizes. It's not that you have to have a combine that can deal with a 1,000 acres. You can actually retrofit uh, push lawnmowers to do some elements of this. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in talks with, with some machining companies to figure out small-scale small ways of making the uh, threshing, winnowing, and even grinding process a little bit easier so that you can go from beautiful wheat in your yard to flour. And I think that's on the horizon. I, I think companies like John Deere are, are very forward-thinking and, you know, want to help make growing food in smaller scale more accessible. And uh, this certainly applies to residential uh, landscapes just as much as they do sustainable uh, small farms. You know, as, as much wheat as the early people had to deal with to keep their little villages alive. You'd think that there would be something that has been handed down or maybe sitting in a museum someplace um, that could tell us a different way that they do it. Of course, we always see pictures of them tossing it up in the air on a breezy day to, to get the chaff out of it. But I gotta wonder if there wasn't something better than just women sitting there, because it was women for the most part, and and doing it all themselves. There's got to be something out there already. You're, you're motivating me to find that solution. You know, what we do uh, is use a box fan, and, mm -hmm. you know, after, after chafing, kind of shift it from pot to pot and, and blow the chafe into the landscape because it's a wonderful mulch. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes get excited about this, and then somebody brings me back down to earth and, so, no, you might not be growing wheat to exclusively use for flour, 
But the biomass that these grains provide for building soils is second to none. And like you said, you use wheat straw. People buy wheat straw all the time when they're, say, overseeding turf. And they don't even realize, I don't know that they put those words together and think what wheat straw actually is, but why not grow your own wheat straw and use that in your compost or, or use that in your vegetable spaces because it breaks down and it helps suppress weeds. And, uh, you know, I, to me, I think that first and foremost, grains offer an aesthetic value that is second to none. I actually will, will argue that there's not an ornamental grass that a green doesn't surpass in its beauty. Well, uh, maybe pink muley. <laughs> well, pink muley okay. is gorgeous, too, you know, and it, it's... I'll say that pink muley can certainly be grown in conjunction with rice and sorghum, which is how I put mine all together. And, um, you know, then you have these different height elements and, um, of course... Pink muley comes and goes. You know, it, it fades pretty fast, whereas the grains have a long-lasting stature. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I think there's a place for all of it. And, and it, it, I'm baffled that, uh, you know, purple leaf penicetum is remaining the king of the annual grasses when we have wheat and sorghum and oats and rice and rye and barley that are all equally interesting and, and serve this bigger purpose, even if it's just in theory. You know, I, I think um, there's still a connection when you know that plant could provide you something more. And, uh, and, that's and even if it doesn't thing. provide you with something more, it can be feeding the wildlife, feeding the birds. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, think of how far that our um, bird seed has to travel. You know, a lot of the sunflower is... is from the Midwest, and we've got some grains coming in from other countries, and eh, that just that kind of bothers me. Now, you have, we only got about agree. a minute left, but you had mentioned that you were trying something different this year with you, and, and right before the last break, you just started talking about how you were planting this stuff in trays so that you can plant that um, out in the landscape so it looks like an ornamental grass. That's right, just planting it as clumps and, and, you know, putting it in the landscape in a very organized fashion so that it, it looks more like a conventional landscape feature. And I really think that there's a lot of potential for, for using grains in that context, particularly in the southeast where we have a climate that allows us to grow through the winter and we all have a strong desire to have winter interest plants. And there are so many other parts of the country that can grow, at, if not all varieties, but at least one variety. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're thinking outside the box. And it, I, I look at your landscape, and I am just thrilled with it. And dunk on it, we have gone through another hour already. And so, Bree, we're going to have to, we're going to have to try this again another week. And we'll be back with more of America's Homegrown Veggie Show. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.